Today, you are in for an absolute treat. Today, you get to meet Louise Brockman. Louise is the CEO and founder of the Advisory Board Center, the worldwide organization dedicated to supporting advisory boards, advisory board leaders, advisory board chairs, research around this whole topic. And in this conversation, you're going to learn some amazing things. Louise is such a, I believe, a profound thinker. She's a researcher who practices stuff. She digs in, she creates, she plays in this world, but she comes up with just the most amazing, well-researched, well-structured thinking around advisory boards and really leads the world in doing this. I've had the privilege of knowing Louise for just under a year. I learned about the Advisory Board Center, actually took the certification process to become an advisory board chair. And today I get to talk to the OG. And you're going to learn more about that as we have this conversation. But buckle up. I know this is going to be a good one. Louise Brockman, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. I am extraordinarily delighted you're here. It's lovely to be here, Tom. Yeah, it's great. So what are your geographic coordinates today? I actually don't know. Well, well, I live in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. So do you have actually the coordinates on on that, Tom? <laughs> no, I don't. But I just, you know, I just wanted to check where you are today because I know that you travel a fair amount. So I'm just checking in on that. And because I know it's morning there, what's your morning drink of choice? What do you start the day with? Actually, the start of my day now is a lemon ginger tea. It's nice and refreshing and no caffeine before 10 o'clock. So <laughs> I get the jitters. Oh, are you on that plan now <laughs> on the new no caffeine before 10? Be, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just ease my way into the day rather than, you know, punch my way through it. <laughs> so you get up and you start with tea, lemon ginger, you said, right? So what's what's your morning look like? I, I'm always intrigued by the morning routine of high performers. And so what's your morning routine look like? Does it start with, I don't know what it starts with. That's why I'm asking. Well, it depends where I am. So if I'm working from home, I'll start, I'll jump out of bed and start my calls at six in the morning because we do a lot of work in the US and Canada. And so those early morning calls are what starts my day. If I'm working in the city at the office, I get up at half past four in the morning drive into the city. I walk for a half an hour to get to the office. So I don't park in the city. So it forces me to walk and enjoy the beautiful sunrise. And then I start my day at six o'clock. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 Okay. So that gives us a, a sense of how you start things and what you start with. Yeah. But I always like to always get a sense of, of who I'm talking to in terms of their story. So take me back to your 11 or 12 year in high school. And I'm not sure I said that right. It's sometimes called 11th or 12th. You'll have to confirm that. But tell me back then, what are you thinking? What are you dreaming? What are you hoping to do with your life? Well, it was actually a very full life. Uh, so I lived in northern part of Queensland on the Great Barrier Reef. And my parents owned a resort. And I was going to school in, in another town. But I was pretty much working full time since the age of 13 to put myself through school. And so I was 
not studying that hard when I was working hard. I go to school to sleep. <laughs> so it was uh, a bit of a ride, actually, supporting my parents in their in their business. As you know, most most family businesses are children are great slave labour. <laughs> so, well, yes. Oh, <laughs> but what a what a great opportunity to learn from my parents directly. So it was really valuable, more valuable to me than school was. And so the resort, was that a combination of restaurant and hotel and things like that? So what what was the... Yeah. Yeah. It was in a beautiful part of the world called Mission Beach. And it's this beautiful aqua blue water. And it was very, very heavy, ancient rainforests that go right down to the sea. So Mm. there are beautiful, beautiful forests, um, cassowary birds, which are endangered and and just a, a, a glorious part of the world. So very, very blessed to be able to be there. So what were you dreaming of at that point? I know you had a rich life and all this stuff and you're slave labor and you're part of this <laughs> community, obviously. But what are you thinking of for your life? What's What are you imagining your future will look like? I think at that time, I was probably just dreaming of being free and going to a party. <laughs> uh, so having a bit of downtime was was kind of probably my my biggest ambition at that time. But I loved being so immersed in what I was doing and people. You know, it was the resort was all about people and being a host and yeah. creating great experiences for other people, and I loved that. And you know, when when I turned nineteen, I started my first business, and it was a it was a restaurant and that background that I had from my family enabled me to be able to to do that. And I loved it. Absolutely loved, loved that. So was that connected to the resort or did you go somewhere else and build this restaurant? No, this, that, this that, new venture. It, it was. I, I did a business deal with my parents and brought on a business partner as a chef. We actually, we got hit by a cyclone or a hurricane, I think you, you called them, and we lost everything. And oh. I couldn't afford to go to university and I couldn't get a job somewhere else. So I knew the business. So I, I did a deal with my parents and leased the restaurant from them and had that business for about two years, uh, which was terrific. It was hard work that I learned so much about business at that stage. So what was the biggest lesson looking back that you took out of that two-year stint in the restaurant? What was the thing that most sticks with yeah, you? Yeah, you choose your business partner carefully. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, so where did you go from there? You're, you finished this two years and I, you know, I've looked at your LinkedIn resume and there's, there's these interesting gaps because you're a rock star in so many parts of your life. And then there's this gap between the restaurant and some of the bigger things you did. So where did you go in the middle of all that? What, what happened? Yeah, I, I stayed in the, in the resorts industry uh, and managed restaurants in, in resorts and then took up a role with Qantas. And Qantas had acquired another airline that had five island resorts as part of their operations. And so I looked after the, the HR component of these island resorts on the Great Barrier Reef. And and I became general manager on Dunk Island and Great Keppel Island Resorts. So I actually lived on the islands, managing those island resorts for, for quite a few mm. years. And I've still got many friends that they, when we worked there. And it was an exciting time of my life because when you're managing an island resort, you're not managing a business, you're managing a community. Mm. Because there's guests, there are staff who are living and working together and sleeping together and doing all that sort of stuff. And then there's the airstrip, there's the sewage treatment plant, there's everything barges, there's, there's everything else that goes with it, right? And so 
just such an exciting an exciting time. But but I left when Qantas sold those island resorts and and did my my masters and my thesis was on the future of human resources. And I got got out hmm. of corporate HR not long after that because I was just really itching to get back into my own business, which was back in two thousand and one when I started my first iteration of my the last business that I had. So I've been in business ever since. So when along the way did the inclination to be a deep researcher show up? Like when did that desire or love of research become a part of your psyche or was it always there? When when you were a kid, were you a researcher? When did that become part of it? I was never a researcher as a kid. I was a listener. And so I'm a better mm. listener than I am a talker. I'm much more comfortable being a listener. And when I was in Qantas, there was a particular behavior that I saw with the managers on the different islands when I was supporting all the general managers before I became one myself. And I would go onto one island and I would see that the, the staff would mimic the leader. They would have a very similar sort of style. And you go into another island and their behavior was mimicking their leaders. And I guess in a micro environment, everything's magnified, right? So you, you can just mm. you come into this, this culture and just go, wow, isn't this interesting? So I actually asked Qantas at the time, can I research groupthink in isolated environments? And they said, sure. So I just started my, out of my own curiosity about what, what happens with leadership styles and their relationship with employees in these isolated environments like island resorts, like hospitals in remote areas. It's just very interesting, the relationship that you have in those, those environments. And that really started my, my journey. I could have picked a, a, a simpler topic to start with. Yes. Yeah. And so when I um, moved into this business, um, the last business, and I really enjoyed doing my, my thesis, I realized that human resources in the small and medium-sized business sector is very different to that in the corporate environments. Mm. And actually in my research that I did with my thesis was called The Future of HR, Shape Up or Ship Out. So I, I just found uh, the role of human resources in the corporate sector just really numbing. And so when I, when I was building these models for HR for the business sector, you can't just dumb down what happens in a corporate environment. It, it's, it's different. And so how is it different? Mm -hmm. You can't bring in these systems that are going to constrain a business. And so I thought, well, I want to really understand the relationship between an employer and its employees in the business market. And so what's it like to work with or for an entrepreneur and how, how does that shape the relationship and the underlying processes that, that sit under that? So in 2002, I started a research piece, which is around why some businesses achieve their strategy and others don't. It was based on 5,000 businesses back then. It took me two years to do it. And out of that, certain models like the strategic action model came out of it. There was a model that I ended up patenting, uh, which is about measurement of organizational capability. All of that came out of that, that research. So the research base for me is about, I think people do research for two things. One is they want to prove a point and the other is that they want to find something. And so I want to find mm. something that I don't know. I want to discover this little nugget that it's been overlooked or missed or un not, not understood. And then what do you do with that? So research without a yeah. purpose to do something with is just, I don't know, it's wasting time. And so I, right. I love the concept of living research, not for a PhD that by the time it's published, it's old, it's done. It's about 
this is the living research, what we know now, what do we do with that that's going to make a difference? And so that's been my my research pathway that, that the next big research piece was between 2008 and 2016 on 26,000 employees in 607 businesses. And also during that time, I researched 430 consulting uh, firms in 17 countries to evaluate what's the future of the consulting sector. And that's when I really discovered the democratization of advice was coming down the pipeline in a big way, um, which reinforced the other research that was being done around advisory boards. And so research for me is just satisfying my curiosity and giving me license to play and create new things. Oh, that's delightful. Delightful. Before we get into the advisory board side of it, just give me a sense. So you get all this research on HR, the way people think, the island, you know, the leadership in these small communities and then entrepreneurs, and you build HR Coach International. I believe that was the name of the company. And ultimately, what was it? Was it a HR consulting firm? What was HR Coach International? It was an outsourced HR solution for business, for the small and medium-sized business sector. So the average okay. size of a business with an outs- outsourced HR, it's sort of like what CFO services are today worldwide, be between, you know, 25 to 45 employees or 75 employees. That's kind of like, that's the homeland for yep. an outsourced um, HR professional. So that I built the methodology. We developed a software package for it. We then built out a network of licensees uh, so that they could then build their HR coaching services to businesses in their own regions or in their own markets. And this was absolutely, I didn't realize it at the time, but probably about 65, 70% of our licensees were women and also women in regional areas. And so where normally they can't have a professional Mm. career in that way, in in smaller communities, we're able to really empower women to have their own business and and use in a professional capacity. And have that balance, that work-life balance that, that many, you know, have to have with families. And so that had global application in that business model and something, you know, we're really proud of. And rumor has it that it took off and did some really cool things. Yeah, we, we built that to 135 offices in eight countries in a five-year period. So that was a, a lot of work. Actually, I thought it was a lot of work until I'm doing what I'm doing now. Now, this is a lot of work. <laughs> but um, at the time I thought, yeah, yeah I, I was working pretty hard. But um, yeah, when I sold that business, it was time to do that. And I think I slept for a year to to recover from that experience. The choice to exit was because it reached that certain place where it just made sense to hand it off or to sell it. Is that sort yeah, of the, it was, it was time to pass. It was time to pass it on. And I I don't want one thing to define me for my whole life. I've always moved on to new things and always excited about doing doing new things. It's it, so for me, it was I could see when when I was researching around the HR component, I was actually researching entrepreneurship and the business market, and so we commercialized the HR side of that research. But I had this all this other body of research that was not being used and had capacity to do something with. And I was deeply curious about what I could do something with that. So I've I've heard a number of interviews with you. I've obviously been part of, you know, your trainings, and I've learned enough to know that in HR Coach International, 
you have all this research and you've got this knowledge of stuff, but over on the other side, you actually have an advisory yeah. board as part of HR International. And so was there some kind of thing that connected for you back when you were still in HR International where the usage or employing an advisory board, but also your research somehow started percolating this next idea? Was it then or was it after you had rested for a year? It actually started in 2002 when that original research around strategic action about why some businesses achieve their strategy and others don't. One of the key elements that I found in that it was a difference in characteristic is businesses that are running around where their activity is not driving a strategic outcome is that they were addicted to making decisions on the run, right? So going to make a decision, it's, it's so addictive versus businesses that were in the pathway to achieve strategic growth in a really considered way is that they weren't focusing on decision-making. They were focusing on problem-solving. So whoever put problem-solving and decision-making together, it, it, I don't, don't know how that happened because they're actually two very different constructs. So when you focus on the problem-solving piece, and this is what I found in that research, but it started in 2002 and really understood by 2004, is that when you focus on problem-solving, you're evaluating options, right? And so the decision generally reveals itself. So that was the start of that. I then had some businesses mm. that I was supporting and they said, oh, this is great, this HR coaching type work that you're doing. Can you chair our board? And, and I said, well, no, actually, yeah, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't know how to do that. I, I didn't have enough experience or insight to, to do that. I cared about them, right? which is why they yeah, asked. Yeah. I really deeply cared about what they were doing, which is why they built that trust. But for me, that wasn't enough to go into, to do something that I was not experienced in at all. But then when we wanted to grow the, the business, the HR coaching model beyond the software, where previously when I commercialized that software, I misjudged the market and had to sell everything that I owned to keep that business going. A year later, when we had the opportunity to really build out this, this global model, I didn't want to make that same kind of mistake again. I wanted to be really confident in the decisions that I was making. And I decided to have an advisory board. I didn't really know what one was, but I knew I needed, and I wanted quality people around me so I could step up and be account held account to people that I deeply admired, but I didn't want to lose control of the business that I worked so hard to build. Uh, and so that advisory board was perfect for me to be able to, to do that. And that's when it was life-changing for me. So that personal deep experience I had with the advisory board, at the same time, there was a research that I was doing around things like business succession planning and seeing how businesses were managing for either stepping up in their business or to managing an exit. There's a natural planning cycle of around 18 months and 90 day planning. And so this was another cue to me about management of cycles of decision-making. And now all of that just evolved to the point when I'd sold that business yeah. that I thought there's actually something here that needs to be deeply explored. And I need to go and find out what other people are doing in this space as well. Cause I only had my own direct experience. Right. But in that, in that research that I did then over that five years, found that there was no professional body looking after the sector at all. Advisory boards have been around since the beginning of time. You know, Queen Elizabeth I had a privy council and in her opening speech, she said, you know, I want my advisors around me, but don't tell me what to do. Right. So, yeah. 
you know, you look at the, uh, the that's not a direct translation, by the way, but right, right. <laughs> that's the essence of what she was talking about. And so advisory boards have been around since the beginning of time, but it's not being put together as a profession. We go, why? Who's supporting this? Mm. No one was. And so that was, you know, six and a half years ago when we'd finished our pilot testing and, and taken on that role to be the professional body to not control the market. You know, I understood the control mechanism from having a licensing business previously. You can't control a sector like this. It's, it's highly fragmented. So we decided to support it by building a professional body instead rather than running it as a business. Uh, God. Okay. That's really helpful. So you're spending five years in research and what, can you give me a sense of the research of advisory boards, like the kind of focus that you took, you kind of mentioned it earlier, you ran through pretty quickly, but what, what were you, cause I, how you said research is you like finding stuff. So what were you going looking for when you started doing this research on advisory boards? I mean, you had this history, this experience, the HR factors, like what you're seeing there decisions versus problem solving. But when you go out and do this, this extensive research on this advisory board space, what kind of things are you trying to figure out? What, what were the paths that you got led down or you, you felt focused on exploring? Yeah. And so not, not going down into one pathway, you've got to triangulate information to be able to look at the market from different viewpoints, as well as being really cognizant of your own personal bias. That's mm. really important, especially when you're doing immersion type research, which is the way I like to do it, where you throw yourself in your own, your, you are your own crash yeah. test dummy, right? And you go in and, and people were naturally asking me to chair their advisory board because they saw what it did for me. So they said, I want what you're having, you know? So, so it was that kind of, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I was learning from my own, own experience from chairing six advisory boards while I was backpacking around the world. I, I learned from that too, the, the value of a virtual advisory boards since 2012. I was doing virtual advisory boards and models, um, chairing advisory boards via Skype at the time. Zoom wasn't around then. Right. Um, right. Good old Skype. Yeah, good old Skype. I was I was chairing advisory boards at two o'clock in the morning back for businesses back here in Australia. And I remember the biggest the biggest challenge that I had was trying to find the internet. <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to get internet working at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, so anyway, there were a few adventures around that. So, so there's that, the emotion piece. And then there was the consulting piece around 400 mm. consulting firms and evaluating how they were providing services, where the barriers were, where the cliff was in, in grosser consulting firms, what was coming down the pipeline. So interviewing leaders of consulting firms, as well as people who were advisors and establishing advisory boards and having that interview qualitative analysis was, was around getting all those experiences. I guess, into one pool of information at the same time. At the same time, I was developing models and testing them on myself and on others around the ethical boundaries between the role of the chair, the role of an advisor, the role of the consultant, the role of the director and investors. And so through that, then being able to really see there are really interesting ethical dilemmas when advisory boards are not done well. And one of the things that we're finding in our research now is this critical role in corporatized advisory boards around the role of an advisory board manager. So you don't want an advisory board being free range inside a business creating chaos, right? So there's got to be constructs around it to maximize the value of what goes into the advisory board and then what comes out of the advisory board. Uh, So that value gets created, but then needs to be translated. 
so that you get your return on your investment. So this research, where it started back then in 2012, it, it will never end. It'll be a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it sounds like it's it's a lot of work, but it's a delightful work. So I'm intrigued, though, by where in your brain or where in your psyche do these things that you go, oh, I got to look over there because you're you're involved in this advisory board and you you go, I got to figure out the role of the chair because so many places that I've seen over the years and I don't have the insight and knowledge of this industry like you do, but it just seems like chairs are an ad hoc thing in so many cases. They're they're more seen in corporate governance boards, but a lot of times you don't see them. It's often the CEO doing it. Yeah. And so were you seeing people like advisory board chairs in your research or was it something that you were taking on? Was it sort of you were building it as you were like you were building the plane as you were flying it it like because th that's how I sense it from you but I'm just wondering how you're seeing that it it was it was both you know and and it's it's interesting that that role of the independent chair is something that will become more and more important in the market over time so where we see that importance of even looking at some of the ethical dilemmas that we've got in the in the market around consulting and the independence of consulting right. and the independence and personal bias around decision-making, all those things are all leading into how do we have demonstrated independence before decisions are being made? How are those decisions being informed? So the market is constantly, you just see the cues, you just see information in, in conversations, you see information in, in the news feed where everything is like breadcrumbs that we'll see you know, bringing those stories together. I don't know. Some, some concepts just come to you because you are thinking with intent. So you know how sometimes you might daydream and you just let things wash in your, you just wash over you and that goes, that part, your thoughts are just really random. But if you, what I, what I like to do is just to have one thing on my mind and say, isn't that interesting? And just keep my mind focused on that. And I might go for a hike. I might go hug a tree. I might go have a nap. I might go have a shower. And then, <laughs> and then just really focusing on just thinking about this one thing. And you just go deeper and deeper into that. It's not, it's nothing else than that. But I think that that focus and that determination to just let everything else out, remove the noise and just focus on that. It, it reveals you, you, the brain's an amazing thing where you start to get insight just from thinking about it. And, you know, even the term thinking system that I really reflected on that term because people talking about systems thinking, an advisory board is not a systems thinking. It's a thinking system. It's reversing it. It's flipping it. So I like doing things like that and putting two odd things together and just see if you do put those two things together, what would happen? And it, you know, I'm, I'm playing, really. I'm getting paid to play. <laughs> it's delightful. I mean, it's just how I hear you describe it. It feels merging thing. You're doing research, stuff's emerging, and then you're putting it into practice or in, in the current form, you're, you're sort of playing with it in this advisory board world that you live in. And I, I just, it, it feels like there's this really cool creative arc that you're always on, which is you're just just out in front of the curve somehow because of the research and the testing and the and the creative spirit that that you live inside of somehow 
And that's just me, right? So people think oh, I'm an entrepreneur or a business owner. I'm, I'm not. I just like to play. And one of the things that really deeply concerns me about myself right now is that people see me as an expert. And so that's really a problem because the market's changing so rapidly mm. that no one's an expert. The other thing is I watch and listen to people who consider themselves experts every day. And the people who listen the least are the people who are the experts because just ask me and I'll tell you how good I am, right? And so experts listen differently. So I don't want to be ever in a position where you stop thinking, you stop listening and you stop being curious. So being an expert in something like this, where you've got to be the teller like this, I'm much I, I much prefer to be on the, on your side of things and being doing the listening. Right? That's my. I understand that's my that I'm way. pushing you in a really cool way, but you you are the in the words of I don't know who the OG. So which is the original gangster? That's the OG term. I'd like to be a gangster. I like I like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So what's the difference between an advisory board and a best practice advisory board? Yeah, there's there's so many different forms of advisory boards. Uh, there's not one way of doing it. But to go from informal advisory boards where a business owner in particular would chair their own advisory board, not pay people, they kind of fizzle out. You get peer advisory boards where you get one chair and you get multiple businesses around that table. That's really great in the socialization of entrepreneurs where people say it's lonely in business and you talk about everybody's needs. Then you get advisory board of one where they say, I want to have an advisory board, but I want to grow into it. So they work with the chair on a monthly basis. Then you get this little fabulous little hybrid called a pop-up advisory board where business might say, oh, I'll work with my chair on a monthly basis, but let's pop in advisors and specialists as we need them, right? Very organic. It's a great fluid, flexible way of doing it. Then the practice advisory boards is when you've got an independent chair, got internal representatives, and you choose your external advisors really fit for purpose and they might meet four times a year and they've got a charter and they measure the impact. So it's very purposeful, it's very focused and it's very impact driven. That's very different to a governance board, right? Where that governance board is that decision-making model where advisory boards is the problem-solving one. Yeah. So there there are many variations uh, to that. The best practice is really when you've got the, the key principles. So we developed the, the best practice framework for advisory boards, which is principles-led rather than process-driven, which is around clarity of scope, structure and discipline, measurement, independence, and fit for purpose. So it's a really good balance of purpose, a balance of process, and then ultimately a balance of people. That fit for purpose term is something that when I learned it from you, although I've heard the term before, In the context of advisory boards, fit for purpose just feels such like a good term, but at its heart, what's fit for purpose mean to you? Like down in your, down in your belly, what's fit for purpose mean? Means that there's, there's not a recipe. This is not a, this is not follow the bouncing ball. Every Mm. business is different. When you think about ultimately what an advisory board is, advisory boards is a construct, right? it's It's a framework. It's more important about why an advisory board exists, not what it is. Why do advisory boards exist? It's because we want to really focus on making better decisions for the future in whatever environment. So with this addiction to making decisions that I found back in 2002, the slowing it down to create this safe space that's non-binding to have conversations just to pull things apart, road test it, 
it's okay to not know and just explore things before we commit to making the decisions. We all need this space of problem solving mm. because the world, we're demanding it of ourselves and of each other that we all make better decisions for the future for lots of different reasons, so many different reasons. And so how do we create this safe space to have this space to think that's non-binding, but just have, you know, people talk about 90-day planning. It's not 90-day planning, it's 90-day thinking. At the end of that thinking, you might make, make a commitment to make a decision, but don't commit to, to making decisions during that time. Create that space just to think. And when you think with each other, that's in, in a really respectful way, but points of view are different. Learning, we're all being curious about the future. And I think and I can't remember what the question was originally, but this, this, uh, the, the, the why advisory boards exist. It's not selling a model. It's about creating these environments. If it's not an advisory board, that's okay. But what is it? Where is it you're creating that space to think so right. we make better decisions and more confident decisions and different decisions to what we may have done in the past? One of the things you have been talking about recently is the value exchange mm -hmm. in that construct of the advisory structure. What's the, you, you talk about a value exchange. Can you talk a little bit more about, so we were talking about fit for purpose and how advisory boards are really thinking systems. They're problem solving versus just decision making. But within that is this value exchange thing that's happening. And can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, the value exchange model only really built it this year. And it's so simple, but I built it because I was researching. We were looking for A-class journals around advisory boards. We only found six and they weren't very good and out of date. So the academic research specifically around advisory boards really, it's, it, doesn't exist. So I thought, where else do we look? So I started to look at A-class journals around confidence in decision-making. And mm. there's just so much. It's so, it's so exciting seeing this research. And so we deconstructed about 26 different articles around the, the decision-making and confidence in decision-making. And they were all, I think, Again, when we, when we read research, we've got to think about what's the intent of the writer. What are they trying to achieve? And I think a lot of people are doing research to prove a point rather than discover right. something new. Yeah. And so it really skews the way something is written and what their argument is. But looking at all this, this research around decision-making, it was just so much noise because I couldn't anchor it into something. And I, I couldn't bring it together in any way. And then I thought I, I needed to take a step back and say, why do we want to research decision-making? And for me, it was around about what is that point when someone decides to make a different decision? And so there's a few things that happen in that point. There's the advisor and there's the advisee. There has to be a value exchange for someone to want to make a different decision. And so for when I just thought about that and wrote it down. He's going, that is the anchor, the value exchange model between an advisor or an advisee. That's the center. That's the foundation mm. to whatever else we learn about that one moment in time that someone decides to do something different. Our research then can come down back to that one point. Otherwise, the future research we're doing this, but this is another gift that we'll keep on giving. 
the the future yeah. research that we do in this space needs to come back to a central point that's simple about this is the why we do what we do. Got it. So the value exchange then is between the advisor and the advisee. And within that, though, there are some things that I believe you learned that made this thing really hum for you even more. What what were those those sort of secret other elements that really pulled that all together for you? Well, there are two things that I I think I learned out of that process that I know now, and I'm it's everything's always subject to change by what we learn for what's next uh, and what else goes into the mix. There there are two things that that I really understand at the moment. One is the power of three. When someone makes a decision, it's not just making a good decision, it's about what makes an optimal decision. And it's when you get advice from really trusted sources, but three, three independent sources and getting that advice on a particular thing creates an optimal decision. And so when you think about an advisory board, that's interesting because you have an independent chair and two external advisors. So you've got the power of three that are independent three. of the business and independent of each other, right? So what that does, it escalates trust in the conversation that you have together, right? It's not three separate mm. conversations. It's a trust in that conversation together. So I think that's a really interesting thing around the element of trust. Yeah, it's trust. The other, the other thing is the confidence test. Now, often I, I hear advisors, so the advisory board center, our community, we've got 600 advisory board professionals in our community, and including you, who are all quality people doing really good things. Now, I hear through so many conversations from advisors, both within our network as well as external, that say, I gave someone that advice and they didn't listen. I told yeah. them that you should do this. And I think when, when advisors have that point of view and they've got a right to have that point of view, but they're kind of missing the point because there's a whole lot of other things that are going on as well. Now, the confidence test, we know there's three things that someone needs to feel confident about in making a different decision. One is the confidence in the advisor or the advisors. Do I have confidence that they have my back and they have the right intent around the advice, mm. in, right? So when you get an advisor who's also then a consultant, that really un undermines trust around intent. So there's confidence in the advice, then you've got confidence in the information. So you get this whole argument and, and rightly so, a very deep conversation about AI as being a source of information. But what information do you have? Whatever it is, is it the right information? And is that the information that we need right now to be able to consider with what we want to do next? So you've got confidence in the advisor, you've got confidence in information. The last piece and the most important piece is for the decision maker to have confidence in their ability to be able to execute. Mm. And so advisors, I think as a profession, we need to get over ourselves, right? And we need to be deeply thinking, not just about what we know, but what somebody else is going to do with that and for us to support them with that, because it's not what we know that's most important. It's about how confident somebody feels about what they are committing to, to doing what, you know, with what's next. This is where it changes people's lives. Mm. Oh, that's, that is so profound. It's just so profound. And how, with that sense of the confidence, that whole sense of the confidence test and the power of three, because interestingly in the confidence test, there's three elements, <laughs> plus there's the power of three, uh, three unique points of view coming into the, the decision maker. 
where have you seen that in your own? Because I know as you lead the advisory board center across the world and in your own, you have advisors and where have you seen that model that's emerged in practice for yourself? Where Where is it become a real story in your own world in terms of advice coming to you as a leader and recognizing that either you didn't have the confidence or you had to struggle with it a little bit. I, I wonder if you have a personal example of that. That's a really good question. In the previous business, it, it was having, I had the three, the three around me and that was just by, not by design and having the conversation, everybody together, not one-to-one. There's, there's a term in the startup land called mental whiplash. And right. It's when you're asking the same question in multiple environments and you just drive yourself and everybody else crazy because you can't get, get a grip on it. You can't get context to it. So the conversation here, a conversation there and something over here, it's how do you make sense of all of that? And so the, the power of advisory boards is quality meetings, having a quality meeting. And I think my big learning moment currently is about the power of advisory boards, including for myself, my own advisory board meetings, is the quality of the agenda, what gets on the agenda. And it's really interesting, you know, when you think about some of the research we're doing at the moment about the quality of how an agenda is structured, it's also a power of three. It's a third, a third, a third. And that's where I'm seeing really? the, the, the power of quality meetings at the moment is a third is about really understanding and unpacking what is the problem statement. Not going into solution mode, but just really just deeply questioning and exploring the problem. The third is then having a discussion around exploring the, you know, how to navigate that problem. And then the last third is about what are you going to be committed to? Mm. So I continue to research everything on myself. So right. this is, this is the, the stuff that I'm really learning at the moment when I'm working with my advisory board that we are really careful about the way that we structure that agenda. And in the market, you know, the state of the market report explores the real dilemma that we have around governance at the moment. And we're not talking about governance boards anymore. We're talking about governance systems. The yes. boards of directors are increasingly constrained and their agendas are getting bigger. So what do they do? And this is where the new role of advisory boards within a system of governance is a very important role to play. And I think something that we should be taking ourselves seriously about the opportunity we have to really support governance board directors to make really good decisions. And that, that's, I feel very responsible about the way that we shape that. But in that, with that agenda getting bigger, what actually gets on the agenda and what doesn't? Because you can't cover off on everything. And that is, that is the tricky thing in the market today when it's just so complex. So many things need to be unpacked and discovered. How do you focus on the things that are going to matter and what gets the airplay? Well, and that, that to me is such a, a part of what you said earlier, which is the way you think through things. You sort of play with them and then you research them and then you test them in your own world <laughs> and then they become models. And what I think is so interesting about you and your model over the years is is you've used advisory boards, you've been on advisory boards, and in the current advisory board center, the, the global organization that that is really leading the charge in terms of how to do this best, you employ advisory boards to help you think through this kind of stuff. 
And that to me is just, you know, I, I say often to people, I eat my own dog food. Like when I say <laughs> to people, you should get coached or you should get an advisor, I hire coaches and advisors, right? And so it, I think it's so important. But because you're at the leading edge of this, what m big mistakes are you seeing emerge? And I, I'm going to particularly, because you, you research the world. And it, and it feels to me sometimes like the Asia Pacific region, a lot of the European stand, they, they have much higher standards, whereas I feel like North America in general tends to be more ad hoc in their advisory board structure. They're evolving. I realize that there's a lot of people here, but what are the mistakes you're seeing happen? Not so much in how the, you know, the, the specific advisors are on them, but how advisory boards are run, say in North America, maybe more than in other parts of the world. You know, I, I applaud anyone that wants to put it together to bring the outside in, to engage with other people, to improve the quality of their thinking. So even if it's informal and it's ad hoc, but they're giving it a go, good on you. The big mistake is making decisions in a bubble without being considered about the consequences of the decisions that you're making. And so, yes, advisory boards could be better. It's a missed opportunity, not not because it's it's because of constraint. It's just a missed opportunity to be able to do things better. So there's always rooms for improvement. You know, we have a hundred year strategy in place. We're six and a half years young now. So we've got a long way to go ourselves as a profession. So we've got a lot to learn. So to listen and to listen with purpose is what, what I think we all have the opportunity to do and to have more collaborative thinking in the way that we do it. Yes, there is systems and processes that could always be improved. I think the U.S. uses the term advisory boards in the market really broadly, mm -hmm. uh, really loosely, yeah. but they're trying to build an environment where it's inclusive. So I, I instead of giving it a hard time, I think it's, it's actually great. There's something, there's a re-education about best practice to make it more right. effective, for sure. Right. There's certainly ethical considerations away the way you see some of them being, that are operating that absolutely undermine trust and create conflicts of interest and, and all of that, but it's a start. Mm. So I think, you know, advisory boards are about the future. It's optimistic. It's blue sky. And so I think our own mindset about being positive about it and building on it is where the conversation for all of us is, is where we can take it. Beautiful. That it's so beautifully well well said, and and I appreciate you turning my somewhat negative question into an incredibly positive <laughs> answer. I could talk to you for another four hours. You are fascinating. I I am not just intrigued by this whole advisory board world that you've created. I'm even more intrigued by the fact that you just the the essence of who you are and how you've built and shaped this whole thing. I realize with a lot of help and a lot of support, but I I'm just in awe of you as a leader and as a insightful person who is creating this hundred year future, which is just just amazing to me. So thank you for the really cool work you're doing. Well, thank you, Tom. And you know you're part of this whole community too. You know what are you looking forward to at being part of this whole journey of best practice in the in a global community that are focusing on thinking together. Well, I'm I'm just I find it I find it fascinating and appealing that there is a better way, a continually better way to do things in companies. I have spent years coaching executives and coaching CEOs. And I, I've always seen that there's this sense that when there is that thinking community or think that thinking group 
there's sometimes not sometimes there's often I've seen it. There's often this insight jump that happens. Like there's this amplification of result. And to me, that's the, that's the cool part. What you've talked about today, I didn't have the words for it, but I've seen it for so many years. This, this cool thing that happens when a CEO puts around them, a group of people that help them to think differently. And it's only in the last couple of years that I really understood the importance of the advisory board and became part of your world and your network and became a certified chair myself. But I'm excited by the, the, the incredible possibility that comes with this kind of construction, this kind of best practice approach to bigger futures for companies and organizations yeah. in general. Yeah, yeah, and and you know the um, the latest report looking at the growth and references to advisory boards is growing worldwide, and it's been termed the hot new governance trend by the Financial Times when they looked at our research. I think in twenty twenty five when we look to to what's next, advisory boards are going to shift from being the hot new governance uh, trend to being the hot new leadership trend. Mm. There is the this is being driven by the stakeholder economy. And so for any leader leading decisions without considering stakeholders and demonstrating quality around they, the way that they've engaged with uh, stakeholders, it's, it's just not going to wash. And so advisory boards is a very important construct around stakeholder engagement. And so this is changing the nature of advisory boards in a massive way. So it's only really just beginning now. Oh, so beautiful. Well, I'd love to end with that, but... I also like to just ask you a few more sort of rapid fire questions just to end the, end the conversation because it's just interesting to me. Um, iPhone or Android? Uh, do I have to choose? Oh, iPhone. Okay. What's your them. favorite backpacking destination in the entire world? I have to say national parks. Oh, a specific one? Is there a specific national park that's your favorite? No, I like going to, to the new. What has Dragon Boat Racing helped you to understand about advisory boards? Keep your eyes in the boat, right? So our, our coach, Cora, she's so feisty. She's strong and she's, uh, so before we start a, a competition, we're, we're all ready to start the race. And she says, okay, everybody, get your eyes in the boat. And so it's all about, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's all about focus. Wonderful. Is there something outside of your professional life that up until now, nobody knows about that you're irrationally passionate about right now? No, I, I love, I love hugging trees. Uh, so that's something that, that fills the world for me. Beautiful. And what's one book that has shaped you more than any other? Cause I know you've been shaped by thousands of books probably, but what's a book that has shaped you more than, than many? I come back to, I was uh, lecturing at a university and I got into trouble for bringing a book to the class. It was about strategy and it was Dr. Zeus, the Lorax tree. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so someone complained about me using it and then I, I took it to back to the faculty and they loved it. But yes, I, the simple is, is sometimes the most powerful. Beautiful. Well, Louise, this has been an absolute pleasure. You are a rock star in so many ways, and I am like beyond honored that I get to know you in my life and to even have you on the uh, the podcast is a delight. So thank you. Likewise. Thanks, Tom. 